1: Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. one 855 450 NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off
0: this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from Raleigh, North Carolina this evening. Yeah, you're in the bunker. Tell me, uh, how's Raleigh? What are you doing there? Uh, So I'm down here for some artificial intelligence training at Red Hat. So this is where they brought a bunch of us in. And, you know, I was pleasantly pleasantly surprised. I walked around downtown Raleigh and uh, a larger number of stores have Christmas decorations and Christmas trees and Christmas music playing than I thought. And I was very pleasantly surprised by that. It's appropriate
1: the day after Thanksgiving. Before that, those people are breaking some sort of federal law. Um, by decorating for Christmas before it's Christmas season, but the day after Thanksgiving and through like I would say New Year's Day, maybe the second, um, that's perfectly fine, and we celebrate that, and that, I think that's great. Um, the people that bring it out in like October, those people, they're, they're bad people, Steve. They're they're un <laughs> they're unsavory characters.
0: They were. I was. I was having dinner last night, and uh, someone was decorating the tree last night. So quite obviously, not right after Thanksgiving.
1: That's fine. Anywhere in between Thanksgiving and, and New Year's is, is acceptable. Let me ask you this. What do you think of AI as you're learning about it and as you're as you're becoming professionally involved in it? There are people that are terrified of it. There are people that think it's the next big thing to replace humanity. There are other people that think it's the next greatest thing because it's going to solve a bunch of our problems. You know, I, I look at it from a like a 30,000-foot pragmatic view of like, okay, AI is really a combination of two things, right? It's information and it's computing power. So if... If Google, for example, has more electrical power and computing power than the entire city of London and they have the data sets that they've been building for the last 25 plus years, that puts them at a tremendous advantage. That's about as far as I've thought into it. What are you seeing on the ground?
0: Hmm. Well, so without getting into it, and we'll probably do a show on this at some point, um, there's different types of AI. Hmm. And some of the stuff that people are, Worried about is this idea of um, general AI or sometimes referred to as super AI, which is where it starts to learn for itself and train itself, and then nobody really has any understanding of how it's learning. And the fear is that theoretically, this type of model will be able to outlearn us, outthink us, because it'll be able to come up with questions and solve for those questions uh, when we haven't even thought of them. We're a little ways off from that. There's some rumbling that OpenAI might have stumbled on some of that. But to give you some idea, when you go ask um, ChatGPT something, it takes 30, C, uh, 30 GPUs just to handle your query in some sort of reasonable time period. So if you wow. think about like, you think about how much oomph is being put behind just handling day-to-day questions and stuff like that. Like the... The scale at which it takes to train and process models is is astronomical. Like a client of ours has is spending one hundred and eighty thousand dollars per GPU to give you some idea of like what the top end AI GPUs go for. So we're heading in that direction maybe, but it's um, it's not as close as people think
1: it's maybe not as close as people think but at the same time it what you're saying kind of reinforces my pre-existing belief that is to say it sounds like what we're talking about is the people who have a tremendous amount of compute power and a tremendous amount of data are the ones that are going to be there and it's almost not quite but it's almost unapproachable for guys like you and me
0: um that's not necessarily true and again this is a deeper topic but there's a difference between making a foundational model which is where you have all of the data and you're trying to make a, a base model for AI and using the AI for tweaking or training it on a specific subset of data. And the vast, vast majority of people, if they're doing anything with it, they're working at a level where they're just kind of doing small tweaks. There's like the, the there's only a handful of companies that could handle making a foundational model, NASA, Google. Right. Uh, and a few others. Right. Um, and it's just, it's so far out of reach for everybody else. Even if you could say, have the compute power, where would you get all the data? How would you store that? Do you have 15 petabytes in your basement? I sure don't. That's what I'm saying. So
1: isn't that predicated on those companies being willing to share their their models, their data?
0: It In some aspects it is, but a lot of the models are being trained on open data so information that has been collected say over the internet or whatever by various open foundations and so um, it's not the only thing that i would say it gives them a leg up but it, they're it's not we're not beholden to them and for that specifically because there's been a lot of crowdsourcing of data happening <laughs>
1: Our first email tonight comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, "Hey, you no know one, Steve. I just bought a couple of laptops for my f- five and six-year-old children. I obviously want them to have them running Linux. I did some research and ended up installing Ubuntu. The alternatives I found were not well maintained or a bit oversimplified. I like that Ubuntu is a full-blown Ubuntu distro, but I want to be able to restrict access to sites and applications that are inappropriate for them." you have suggestions for tools or another distro that would help this age group I do not want to spend too much time with setup configuration maintenance or something that was pre-configured would be ideal thanks I love the show so Steve if you woke up in Chris's shoes and you were trying to come up with some laptops for your children that were running a Linux distribution and allowed you to do some web content filtering what would you do
0: tough call Um, so probably not the ideal person to ask because I would say I wouldn't give my children at that age uh, something. We we severely restrict my children who are seven and 11. Um, but if if I was helping someone else, I might look at Endless OS. That That's kind of my default go-to. There's a bunch of parental controls that are built into it. Um, you'd still have to configure it, but there's a bunch of parental controls and there are things that you could layer on top of it to help guide you in that area but honestly um i i probably i feel like giving a computer that small to a child that small is like giving them a knife and then saying how do i protect them from the knife like well you know maybe we should teach them how to use the knife before we we get down that path and and in my estimation for my kids they weren't ready for that what would you do so
1: this is interesting, right? And you, you and your wife, and myself and my wife have had like more than one in-depth conversation on this topic because it's just there's 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 a lot to consider here. But if you don't mind, can I can I poke at this a little bit? So your your thing, which I think is a really good argument, is at what age does it no longer become practical to learn how to use a computer? Because that absolutely exists. I had I had, we had a client, and he was in his upper sixty years old. And the first time we he had ever operated a computer, and so it looked like, no word of a lie, him throwing the mouse around the table to try to move the cursor, because if you've not used it before, from his perspective, he kind of chucked it, you know, it would slide, and then he would try to get the mouse cursor to land right where I want, rather than keeping his hand on the mouse and moving it around. And while you and I hear that, and there's somebody laughing at it, the reality is for him, that was a struggle because he'd never used it before. And so this is a new skill he's trying to acquire at almost seventy years old, the end of his career, that sort of thing, right? So there's absolutely becomes an age where that where the neuroplasticity reduces and that isn't possible. But you would say that's nowhere near five years old. And anybody who's learned how to use a computer, which the vast majority of our generation did in their like teens, maybe early adulthood,
0: proves that. Yeah, I I just don't think that. I don't think that there's a big mover and shaker advantage because for the vast majority of people, now, uh, little Noah accepted, the vast majority of people, they're not doing something where they're actually learning something useful. Anybody can and pick up and poke at Facebook or pick random things. Those are not real world skills. Most people are also not handing their kids uh, electronic device and saying, here, go learn how to type. Again, most what they're doing is they're just kind of using it as an entertainment device. That is not a valid reason, in my estimation, to introduce the technology. Like, if so, put it simpler really way.
1: Gonna... Don't put your kids in front of YouTube and call it parenting.
0: Well, I suppose, but more more specifically, people are like, oh, well, they need to learn this. Like, they need to learn technology. I'm like, well, you're not learning technology. Like, you've learned to click on a web browser or whatever. Like. <laughs> like my 11 year old still hunting packs and we make him do typing. Like he, you know, I'm just saying that, that, that be honest with the reasoning behind it. And if you are one of those people that are, are enforcing learning, good for you. I haven't met you yet.
1: (laughs) So let's take that down or down the track of, of endless OS. So why is endless OS a good choice? If the goal is to expose kids to an in educational exploration of technology as opposed to here sit on youtube kid and entertain yourself so i don't have to watch you for the next 2 hours
0: so they built the operating system to be offline so it comes with tons and tons of applications that are educational from from stem related stuff to here's how your shell works and here's how you would do like fiddle around with extensions for gnome or you know, here's the encyclopedia or, you know, you name it, they've got it for it. On top of the fact that they already do um, have some sensitivity in there in terms of like you can go in and set up the account with a couple of clicks, be like you can only use the – you can't use the browser or, you know, you can go to these sites and not those sites. These Those sorts of things are already built in as a consideration in it. And so if you were going to allow them to have access – um, that would probably be the route that I would look at. I like NLOS for for a number
1: of reasons, the biggest of which I like the immutability of it. I think it's a really awesome opportunity to let somebody explore and bang around a box without having to worry about cutting themselves. And I feel even better about the direction of immutable operating systems given the direction that Apple themselves is going, right? If I were to look at the content filtering, that's a diff- more difficult one to to tame so i would say if you can use endless west great let's say that he can't i might suggest looking at some of the web content filtering built into open dns and then setting the dns provider to open dns so one of the things he asks is he said it'd be great if it was just you know ready to go right well configuration here would be specify this dns server in your home router or just go specified on the kids devices now is it going to keep an incredibly technologically advanced kid from figuring out that oh it turns out if i switch the dns servers to you know cloudflare or google dns i'm going to be able to get around these things yeah there's that the other side of it is the content filtering works off of your public ip address so that is to say It allows certain requests to succeed if they come from one public ip address but they won't allow those requests to succeed if they come from another ip address that's how it kind of tracks your account so you have to have either dynamic dns set up or you have to have a static ip with those two requirements aside though i think open dns is a great way to, to to do some of this because the reality is my kids had this thing with youtube for a while and i just got very upset steve and one day i just decided like we're done with youtube for a while i just You're going to go do something else. And I tried to block YouTube at my house. You would not believe the weird esoteric stuff that breaks all over the place when you block YouTube. It was unreal. Stuff I would have never thought to include things like menu items and or aspects of the Nvidia Shield. But it turns out when it can't reach its Google servers, it just it throws a fit. I'm online, but I can't get to this thing. What's going on here? And it it's it just it's very strange. So, um, and and beyond that, it's not the easiest thing to do because increasingly DNS requ- requests are encrypted. So I blocked YouTube and redirected it to to uh, one twenty seven zero zero one. All the things, and it turns out Firefox was processing those requests encrypted. So I couldn't intercept them. And the, so the, and you get down this rabbit hole of you know trying to Trying to break or intercept those things and it it just doesn't work well. It's difficult. It's a pain. So if this guy is looking to get things done out of the box, I can't I have a hard time recommending that route, even if you have a router that supports it. I like the idea of open DNS. It's not a foolproof method, but it'll keep the honest kids honest. Our second email comes in from Michael. Michael writes in and says, Hi guys, I only recently started listening, but I've already gotten so much out of this show. I started to use and learn Proxmox and I have a question about serial connections on Proxmox, specifically with an Ubuntu VM. I'm trying to enable Xterm on the guest without any success. All the documentation I found about setting up a serial connection refers to using Upstart, which looks to be deprecated in favor of system D. My question is how do I configure system D to use the guest to allow a serial connection from the Proxmox host? Thanks and keep up the great work. So Steve, If I'm understanding Michael's question, what he's wanting to do is he wants the VM to output its terminal over serial. That's what we're trying to accomplish here.
0: So this, this, if you were doing Versh, for example, would be how you do a Versh console um, because Versh does it over serial as well. And you have to, there's two steps to this for KVM. And I assume it's the same thing for Proxmox. So there's the client side setting inside of the VM, you have to ina- allow the TTY to go over serial. And there's also the host setting, right? So the host also has to know to go and try and connect to that. Um, I don't really have any practical Proxmox experience to be able to say much more than that. I did, did some reading. It seemed like it was possible. It seems like the key here is to make sure that both the client and the server have the appropriate... Uh, settings. So it sounds like the user that Michael here has tried or made an attempt to find the documentation, um, but the documentation sounds like it's old. If the, if the implication here is that system D is what's required now, but upstart was uh, what was in the documentation, that upstart's a long time ago now. Yeah, 100%. I uh, I Again, like
1: Steve, I don't have a lot of hands-on experience with Proxmox, in part because I'm increasingly getting, I'm increasingly distancing myself from these appliance-like distros that become special snowflakes. So they do a thing, and maybe, and especially in the case of Proxmox, it does really well, but then you're locked into that environment, that thing, and that just kind of drives me nuts. Um but I took a bit of a peek, and it looks like there is essentially you have to enable the serial console. Um, and once you do that, uh, you start the serial serial console up on the VM, and then it will output uh, that that serial data. Um, I will include a link in the show notes, podcast.asnoshow.com so you can take a look at it and see that that fits your uh, fits your bill and answers your questions and if it doesn't then either write back in or give us a call sometime and we'll help you live on the air. Our third question comes in from Bradley. Bradley writes in and says, "Hi Noah. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for taking for your amazing content and your service to the community. With your show and others like it, I have gained knowledge and experience to call myself maybe half competent my question I have built a website for my 11 year old boy which presents tests to him which I curate and develop Upon successful passing of one of the tests he's awarded and given an amount of minutes those minutes accumulate and when he feels that he wants to click the claim button to redeem his minutes once he clicks the claim button there's a webhook that's sent to my home assistant where this, this guy is this guy's brilliant Steve this guy's absolutely this guy's my hero once he clicks the claim button, a webhook is sent to my home assistant where I have a script that runs in automation. With PFSense integration, That the script disables a firewall rule to unblock the Internet for his PS5 for the amount of minutes that he claimed, allowing him to play. This all works great. The Internet is blocked. The block rule. Then, when the rule is disabled, the Internet works on it. The problem comes in when the rule is enabled after a set amount of time. I can see that the rule is automatically enabled by Home Assistant, but the Internet, I assume this is, isn't blocked I thought maybe it had to do something with concerning the states, but even when I reset the state table, the internet is still not blocked. The only way that I can get the internet to block again is by physically turning off the PS5, and then the firewall rule acts as expected again. Why is this? Does a PS5 use some sort of technology that allows the connection to persist? I thought maybe the PS5 could be using IPv6 for some traffic, but no. I'm not understanding. I already have the solution. I'm just going to buy a smart plug, but I want to know why. Thanks again, Bradley. So Steve, what do you think is going on in Bradley's house and how does he keep his son off the internet after he runs
0: out of his minutes? Well, this is a little bit of a tricky problem. So it it all comes down to, so you were on the right track when you were thinking about states. What happens is um, stateful firewall connections are not going to be interrupted when a a session is already established. So you have to go back to the basic TCP IP, which, which is a client calls out to a server. So in this case, the PS uh, is calling out to the server, the server responds and they negotiate a port for which to open a connection to. And ideally for something like the the PlayStation, it uses one or maybe a few connections and keeps them open and, and just simply handles traffic back and forth. What's happening is once the session's established, the firewall is not gonna cut off a currently established session partly because the client and the server have already negotiated and don't need the firewall anymore. Yes, the traffic still is passing through there, but the firewall itself is not really involved at that point. Mm-hmm. When when you insert a firewall rule, it only affects new connections. So because the PlayStation has already made however many connections it needs to make to maintain its its connectivity, uh what would have to happen is the game itself would have to be would have to quit or you know whatever is making the connection so obviously when you go and unplug the playstation that breaks all of the connections um short of that there really isn't uh, a whole lot you can do you could try setting the state table that might work it depends on how resilient and how many sessions the playstation opens up because depending on the device and the thing um high-bandwidth applications will establish multiple sessions in order to be able to handle the the, uh, bandwidth requirements. And so you'd have to go hunt them all down, and it might be somewhat challenging to do that. And you probably don't want to just full stop break all of the state in your house because that would affect everything, like someone streaming on Netflix, for example.
2: From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is The Week in Review. With JT. For the week of December 10th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. EXT4 has a data corruption bug. GNOME 45.2 has been released. LibreOffice 7.6.4 is out. Jellyfin has reached a massive milestone release with the version bumped to 2.0, as well as the TV Android app getting improvements. Debian 12.4 has been released. Alpine Linux 3.19 is out and Linux 6.8 is dropping support for very old graphics drivers. In security news, the NSA and ESF partners have released recommended practices for managing open source software and software bill of materials. A vulnerability in the open source OpenZeppelin library that is common across the Web3 space impacts the security of pre-built smart contracts, affecting multiple NFT collections, including Coinbase. A newly revealed critical security issue with Bluetooth can potentially allow attackers to take control of Android, Linux, macOS, and iOS devices. Detailed by security researcher Mark Newlin on GitHub this week, the vulnerability tracked as CVE-2023-45866 is an authentication bypass that allows attackers to connect susceptible devices and inject keystrokes to achieve code execution. A previously unknown Linux remote access Trojan called Kraus has been observed targeting telecom companies in Thailand by threat actors to gain covert access to victim networks since at least 2021. Named after a nocturnal female spirit of Southeast Asian folklore, the malware is able to conceal its own presence during the initiation phase. Robust intelligence has found a way to use AI to automatically jailbreak GPT and other large language models. In the attack method, named Tree of Attacks with Pruning, or TAP, can be used, in their words, to induce sophisticated models like GPT-4 and LLAMA-2 to produce hundreds of toxic, harmful, and otherwise unsafe responses. Continuing onto the open-source AI news, the EU's AI Act could exclude open-source models from regulation. Meta has released some open-source tools for AI safety. The Purple Llama Project aims to help developers build generative AI models responsibly. Apple has quietly open sourced several AI tools in a landmark move, including a library for large-scale deep learning models running on the public cloud and a framework for machine learning on Apple Silicon. And lastly, it might not be the year of the Linux desktop yet, but Linux distributions will soon have their own blue screen of death message. System d 255 has been released with a blue screen of death feature.
1: last week beeper mini was announced and steve and i's impression was it's a really cool project it's a really cool effort they'll be successful until apple notices and then that will be probably the peak and end of their success well as it turns out beeper mini was the most popular program ever launched on the android operating system in the history of android apps In the first 48 hours, it was downloaded more than 100,000 times. Well, actually, by 100,000 people, so I presume that they have some sort of unique metrics to be able to justify that. And they would tell you that the reason for the success is clear. Android and iPhone customers desperately want to be able to chat together with high-quality image, video, plus encryption, emojis, typing status, read receipts, all of the things that you've come to expect in a modern chat platform. Now, Apple has routinely said, we are not going to do this. We are not going to participate in this. iMessage is not available for Android. It's only available for iOS. So within 24 hours, well, so so Beeper Mini comes up. Three days later, it comes back. It comes crashing to a halt, and Apple releases a statement. So I want to start with this. Steve, were you surprised as you saw this news break? Nope. <laughs> do, you want, do
0: you want to think about that, or you're pretty <laughs>
1: confident in your answer? <laughs>
0: I mean, it pretty much boils down to the conversation we had last week was like playing in a gray zone um, and they might not be able to do anything legally, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to do something to make your life miserable.
1: So Apple came
0: out with the following statement. They said at Apple, we build our products
1: and services with industry leading privacy and security technologies designed to give users control over their data and keep their personal information safe with us only. Just safe, sorry. We took steps to protect our users by blocking techniques that exploit fake credentials in order to gain access to iMessage. These techniques pose significant risks to user security and privacy, including the potential for metadata exposure, which, enabling unwanted messages, spam, and phishing attacks. We'll continue to make updates in the future to protect our users. So, okay, Apple. You can come down off your high horse. Here's the deal. The way that it works today, if an iPhone user wants to send a message to another iPhone user, that's an encrypted chat. Now, it's not a real encrypted chat from the standpoint that you have the private keys and nobody else does. It's a Apple manages it for you on device. So you trust them. You just trust them and they'll take care of you. They got you. If you don't have an iDevice, if you're not an Apple user, those messages... Are sent over plain SMS. Worse yet, if you have a hundred iPhone users in a group and they're all using encrypted iMessage, so all the information is presumably only available to them and their recipients, and one Android user joins the group, the entire group becomes unencrypted. So Beeper made a distinction, made a decision to put on the planet a piece of software that allows people to speak Apple's native iMessage. And the answer from Apple is they're doing so to harm security. So Beeper came out with their response and they said, we of course expected a response. What we didn't expect is some 1984-esque doublespeak. The statement is complete fear, is complete fud. Beeper Mini made communication between Android and iPhone users more secure. That is a fact. And, of course, what they're referring to there is if you didn't have Beeper, all of those messages, instead of being blue bubbles, encrypted messages between iPhone users or Beeper users and iPhone users, instead of being that, they would fall back to SMS. Quote, make no mistake, the changes that Apple made on Friday were designed to protect and the lock-in effect of iMessage. The end result is that iPhone customers have less security and privacy than before. They say that because by doing so, Apple forces all of these people to fall back to SMS. So here, I guess, is where I'm screaming into my microphone and I hope you can hear the frustration pouring through your headphones or speakers. Why is this a surprising response from Apple? Did you actually think, did you actually believe that the company Apple is actually focused on security and your privacy As opposed to locking people into their walled garden because i'll be honest with you steve i it was never my suspicion it was never my expectation that apple was doing this for the the good of humanity or the good of their users the reality is they have a vested interest in people buying iPhones. so when steve when tim cook comes out and says uh buy your mom an iphone or steve jobs whoever it was when they say buy your mom an iphone it's because they have no interest or intention of bringing imessage over to android in fact Actively works against them. It has nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with security and privacy and all the rest of it. What it has to do with is they make money when they buy iPhones. And if they allow people to use the advanced features of iMessage on an Android phone, there's less of a reason for people to buy an iPhone. Am I missing something?
0: I mean, I don't think so. I Ultimately, everybody wants to be the walled garden, and the only thing that's stopping them is a few regulatory bodies that keep smacking people when they get too much into the monopoly territory. And yeah, that's that's essentially, we demonize it, but at the same time, it makes sense from from a business perspective. Like, if I have everybody in my ecosystem, then I can make sure that the end-to-end stuff is is good, and I have control of it, and ultimately, it's better because we have a unified system and yada, 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 right? Mm-hmm. There is some logic behind that. Um, so I don't blame companies for wanting to go down that route because, on the surface, it's really hard to think through that, uh, to dispute that, right? It's one of those things where it's almost a straw man argument, but not really, you know, where, where, You put out an argument, it sounds solid on the face of it, but the problem with that is you automatically are enrolled in certain assumptions that you may or may not agree to, like Apple is the best one to be running these things and so on. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they can to protect their bottom line, and if they think that means... (laughs) For some reason, if they think that messaging is that critical, like their product is so fragile that they need Mm. to protect the messaging at all costs, Mm. then they're going to do that.
1: So some people have asked, well, what would be wrong with using Signal or WhatsApp? And I thought Beeper's answer to this was really interesting. Their answer is that they say the Messages app, the default chat app for all iPhone customers not only is the default iOS makes it impossible to change the default chat app. So in the U.S. where a majority of people are using iPhones, that means that the easiest way to chat is by tapping on your friend's name in the contact list and hitting the message button. So you are to believe that because the vast majority of people in the United States have iPhones, that iMessage is the default platform by which we should want to communicate with other people because you can instantaneously reach them. Now, on one hand, I know exactly what they're talking about. If you would have told me, well, actually, back, I guess I should say, when I found out that there was an iPhone bridge, I couldn't have cared less. Like, A, I don't have an iPhone. B, why would I want to use iMessage? So far as I understood it, iMessage, basically, a text message is their app of text message. I think I was tangentially aware that inside of iMessage, you could do, like, video calls or, voice, you know, FaceTime, that sort of thing. But largely, that's where I left it. For the most part, I assume messages just show up on the iPhone. Once I learned through my Beeper uh, account that I can just tap, you know, you sync your contacts and you tap on the contact and it'll tell you, well, this person's on Signal, this person's on Telegram, this person's on iMessage, this person's on all three. I absolutely know what this guy's talking about. As far as I tap on a contact name, there's a 90% chance that one of the options is going to be iPhone. It's, a, it's very rare that they're not. It's also worth noting that if they have an Android phone and they don't have an IP messaging system such as WhatsApp or Telegram or whatever, nothing, their signal, nothing pops up when you go to message that person, unless you're running a separate bridge locally on the Android phone, there is no way to message that person. So in that respect, Apple is very much ahead of the game because their messages and their message system is going over IP. So it's just a matter of speaking that language. So... I wouldn't I won't sit here and tell you I don't know what they're talking about. I know exactly what they're talking about. It's it's incredibly convenient to be able to touch every iPhone user just by nature of it being an IP based thing and this being an IP based thing and we can talk to it. So that's great. Park that over here for a moment. The second thing, the ability to open the desktop app and be able to start talking to a person or continue a conversation and then know that underneath the hood matrix is powering that to me, that's really awesome. Now, all of a sudden, we're building on top of this very open source esque ecosystem Here's where I think the train kind of goes off the tracks. If we go from a walled garden that is Apple to a walled garden that is Beeper, that is to say their focus is no longer necessarily on onboarding people to Matrix and making that a graceful experience. And oh, by the way, you can also bridge all of these things together. If the goal and or the target audience is, hey, you know, it's great. Most of these people have iPhones. So as long as we can hit that, that's really what we need. And then we can bring that to other platforms. I'm not particularly interested in an app or a service that brings iPhones to a bunch of platforms. I get that that seems to be a huge audience, but in some ways that kind of scares me. So now are we, now are we focused on open messaging or are we focused on catering to the largest
0: market? They are a for company profit, uh, like for profit company, are they not? They are. So then what else did you expect them to do? Yeah, I guess it just, it
1: makes the platform less appealing to me. It, it's, it's like, it's fine if that's your goal to get onto iMessage, but that was never, that was never my goal. It was the bridging aspect and the idea that I could live over here in matrix land. But one by one, those things, the, the shingles fall off the roof for me, for lack of a better expression, right? So like, it starts with, well, you really got to use the beeper client. If you don't use the beeper client, then I mean you can do it. All the messages will be there. They're just all kind of jumbled together. They don't separate out by network. Okay, fine. And oh, by the way, you're gonna have a hard time starting chats because, like with the iPhone chats, you gotta have the little thing that tells you what service you're gonna use. And okay, maybe there's a way around that, but that's largely the boat I'm in. And and pretty soon, what I find is I am just I've traded one walled garden for another walled garden. They use their own version of Synapse. It's not the open source version of Synapse. It's their, their it's their own thing. The Beeper client, so far as I understand it, is their own proprietary thing. They're not hostile towards open source. They publish all their bridges. All the code's open you can absolutely sign into your beeper account with a regular matrix client. I've done it. So it's definitely a step above Apple, but I, I just think it leaves something to be desired, I guess, for, for lack of a better way to to say that the other thing that occurs to me is the benefit from my perspective of matrix is that I can get to those messages anywhere. If it's going to be tied to a specific service, that's no longer the case. One other thing that came out of this, though, that I thought was worth pointing out. So last week, I said my understanding of the way that the bridging worked was that they ran a Mac inside of the inside of the cloud. They have little Macs and they had signed in. And and I think that was the case at one time. But in their blog and in their response to Apple, they say, note, beeper cloud. So that's what we would know as beeper. New as of October 2023, iMessageBridge never used Mac Relay servers and still does not today. It uses a similar method to Beeper Mini, which runs on a cloud server. So that tells me that Beeper, from the entire time I've been using it, my iCloud bridging experience is the exact same thing as Beeper Mini. They've just split that off into its own app. That absolutely changes the paradigm for me because it's no longer, well, we're going over here to do this app because it does this thing better, so forget that thing over here. No, it's more along the lines of, we developed this app, it's working so well, but a lot of our people are wanting to do this one thing, so let's break that off into its own little land. I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to continue to be a Beeper user. I'm going to continue to use Beeper. I still think it's a very cool thing. I am thrilled that they got their iMessage back up. If you're using Beeper, particularly if you're using the iMessage Bridge, if you can head over to the Google Play Store and give them a review, they would appreciate it because their ratings took a hit when they were down for three days. Last week, Steve and I started to go through some of the changes we're making at Steve's home and at My Small Business, and as a part of that, we talked about the migrations and migrating your data and having a plan to do it and keeping your users happy and all of that. What we didn't talk about was choosing the hardware to host the stuff on in the first place. So Steve and I thought it would be a good idea to take some time to talk about choosing a vHost. What's a vHost? The reality is computers in 2023 are far more powerful than most people leverage. And so what we've started doing in the computer world is saying, well, instead of having this one physical machine be one computer and largely sit idle, what if I split the resources up and divide it among many tasks? And so that might look like four different little mini computers running on top of a big computer. We call that virtualization, or running a, 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 an operating system inside of a simulated computer that's actually all running on one physical node. Now, with with technologies like KVM, you might think to yourself, Well, gee, if you're emulating four computers, that's going to be really slow and that's not going to be as performant as the bare metal. It would turn out that with technologies like KVM, you can get near bare metal performance. And so there's a very slow cost, overhead wise, I'm speaking, to taking a physical host and dividing it up into a bunch of VMs. So, Steve, I I want to start with this. When you go back and look at how you how you place your server into production what you have, you had an interesting analogy that you've touched on once before, but this idea of we, there's there's this shift, there's this constant shift and a go back and forth between in the technology space. We started on physical nodes, we went to VMs, we went to containers, we're kind of back in a mix. How has that worked out And and what parts of that have you bought into personally at your house and what parts of it are you like, listen, man, it's great for enterprise, doesn't have any place in my home, it's too complicated.
0: So I've been kind of having this internal debate with myself as I'm considering my, my next upgrade um, part of the, part of the cycle is, well, we have compute nodes or we have one giant node. And then we go back to having like little compute nodes, like the spoken hub model. And then we go back to like hyper converged where everything's on top of each other. And part of what drives that is um, the technology around it. So when you have a machine that's that, has a bunch of stuff stacked on it, as opposed to splitting it out, you have concerns about, can my network handle all of the traffic for the things that I'm running on it? Because like you said, you're essentially making little operating systems inside of your computer. So if you've got 40 of them, can my network handle it? If your network can handle it, what about your uh, your disks themselves? Th- essentially what happens is there's a little area like a binary file a qcow2 or something else a vmdk that stores all of the the file system layers that that go into making a vm and you've got multiple ones on a given mount point so if they're all working and they're all processing something can my disks activate fast enough so that those things are not impacted and then similarly you have the same consideration with RAM and CPU, although RAM is a lot less of an issue um, just because of the nature of it. it when you when you virtualize RAM, RAM is just an address and an address. So there really isn't a ton of overhead to virtualizing RAM. And when you're doing CPU, it's become a lot less of a thing. So when you're considering like, well, what are the what is happening out in the, the wider world and how does that apply to me in my home lab? The wider world is going back to a situation where they're buying uh, very large nodes because it's becoming more effective, more efficient for them. For example, to have a couple of large nodes uh, because the we're we're hitting the perfect storm of things like the NVMe drives are just ridiculously fast compared to the SATA drives, and you have things like the AMD EPIC where the the per core count in each CPU is just going through the roof astronomically, not to mention the fact that, you know, CPUs are getting faster and so is memory. So you've kind of got this situation where when it almost makes more sense to invest a lot of money into a smaller number of units than the previous generation, where we we basically had compute nodes we just had a like a bunch of pizza boxes which is what we call the one or two u servers that had some amount of ram and cpu and we would just shovel work units off to them and wait for them to process and come back and so that's some of the stuff that you you need to think about did i help did i cover your question yeah, properly there i i think so so where i'm kind of at with this
1: is so we kind of did our process in three stages. So stage one was, is this even viable, right? It's a nice idea to say to yourself, you know what we'll do? We'll move off of DigitalOcean and we'll move into our own environment and host all our own infrastructure. But the reality is the reason that people use things like AWS and DigitalOcean and all the rest of it is because there's a cost associated with buying and maintaining hardware. So is that even possible? And as we sat down with consultants, with you know the big big manufacturers and started asking them about what to do we got a wide variety of prices you know and you could spend anything from a thousand bucks to to 50 grand on a server in different various different configurations and all of them had pros and cons so what were we going to do so we started with a couple of r7 i believe they're r710s or r720s and we set them up looked to see if we could buy enterprise grade drives and priced out the difference between buying like the Intel Optane drives with just buying not bad, like good quality consumer drives like Samsung NVMe Pros and eventually concluded that if you can do two sets of three so you have so you do you do mirrored pairs but do it in in sets then you can have any one drive in a vdev die and the VDEV stays alive, you can have any VDEV die, and the other one keeps the server running. So it's kind of like, like the sweet spot, I think, for you want to be as cost-effective with your drives, but you want to have some redundancy or some plan for failure, because you don't know what these things are going to do. And so we made that investment and stocked up and said, okay, if nothing else, we'll just replace these drives every two to five years, and we'll see how far that gets us. And we started to slowly, very gently, move services off the... Undeniably robust and and reliable platform that is DigitalOcean and started to move it into our own data center and lo and behold the thing stood up and at this point we've largely moved All of our infrastructure that we're now standing on our own two feet and as we looked at it and watched as the resources kind of filled up We don't want to hit over 85% because that's kind of where you start to run into trouble and at that point, we started to look at it and said, okay, well, now let's look at what the next upgrade is. And so that's kind of the point that we're in now, the, the data center 2.0. And so we got it off the ground. It's viable. It's running. It's paying its own bills and making us a little bit of money. So now we're in the next stage. So we're looking at primarily two different servers. One is the Dell EMC PowerEdge R7425, which is an 8-bay server with two AMD EPYC 7451 uh, uh, processors with an H330 3PCI riser uh, raid card. The second is a Dell PowerEdge R6525 with two AMD Epyx, uh 7542s. Now what's interesting is that you, if you price out the price of a new server and you compare that to the price of a, new, a used server, if you're creative and careful with how you pick out the used server, you can get a similar performance for a lot less money because these things come out and a few years later, they're just, they're not worth as much. And so we were looking at like a budget of twelve to $15,000 per server for a brand new one. We're looking at like a budget of three to $5,000 for a used server. So it's definitely doable. Then the question becomes central storage. Do you have local storage or do you have central storage? Now, Steve, I know you have always gone the central storage route. How has that been working out for you? And, does it leave any room for a desire to improve anything? Or are you just like, no, this is perfect.
0: Uh, for, for our use cases, especially after upgrading the network, there's been real, no complaints with having centralized storage. Um, I will say that for the V host though, I hosted Q two on the storage of the server itself so that I'm not putting that on the network. So I, it's centralized storage in that all of the data gets centralized onto the NAS with all of the hard drives, but I will absolutely run. So my current uh, VM host has four SSDs in mirrored pairs. So like the it's mm-hmm. two VDAVs mirrored together uh, like you were talking about, right? So um, I'm not sure how that relates to central storage that you had in mind because a lot of people think that central storage also means um, storing your qcow or your proxmox images on there so that you can do the the um, migrations and things like that. So here's the deal. At the moment, like so we're, we we did version
1: 1.0 and that has all local storage on the veo. So all the qcow2 files sit locally. They're backed up of course to the to the uh, to the NAS, but running live, they're running off of their own SSDs. Now, my thought with 2.0 is one of the following One is we just do the same thing, and if I don't hear a good reason to do otherwise, that's likely what I'm going to do. It's simple. It works. I like the idea of having everything, the ability for it to stand up on its own two feet. If a drive fails, there's nothing, there's no law that says I can't create an NFS share, move a QCow2 file over, map the directories appropriately, and restart the server. So that that option, it's not like it goes out of the window because I installed some SSDs in the server. So I really like the idea of having local storage. However, there is no question. We're doing, we're starting to get into a lot of Nextcloud hosting. And with Nextcloud, obviously, there's two ways people use it. They use it the application side, that is to say, they sync their calendars, contacts, that sort of thing. But the other thing is they upload just a, 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 a stupid amount of data sometimes. And when you start talking about uploading data and you're wanting to dynamically grow and shrink things, eventually you start running into drive limitations. So, what we've been looking at is a there, there are two options. One is a Dell option. It's the Dell EMC KTN STL3. If you're trying to write down the model numbers, don't bother. we will have all the links for you in the show notes. But it is a drive shelf made by Dell. The downside is it requires an LSI SAS card and, and you've got to connect all of this stuff together. It also, for the 2Us that you get, you're you're getting 15 discs. There is another device from a company called NetApp, and this is kind of what we're leaning towards. It's a little bit more expensive, but it allows you to fit 24 discs in 4U. So you get more discs, but it's also taking up twice the space. So if you're thinking about it, like the the Dell EMC would give you 30 discs for that same 4U, but that's kind of what we're leaning towards because it kind of seems like the better option. But the nice thing about these devices are you essentially connect them with outboard SAS cables to the server. And then you can just start stacking drives. So when you run out of drive space, put another drive shelf in, put more drives in, connect it, Bob's your uncle. If we go this route, I would be sorely tempted to create a 10 gig link between the V host and the storage server and actually run all of those QCOW twos on some sort of an SSD storage pool attached to the file server. Steve, am I crazy?
0: Well, I guess my first question is, um, your next cloud host are you are you storing the data in the qcow yeah, uh, we are yes Ah, well that's a difference in architecture i would not do that i would map the i would map the data drives off of the vhost okay um, for a large number of reasons but that's the direction that i have gone and i i continue to recommend for my clients because the idea is the the front end should be ephemeral like you shoot it it doesn't matter where it lives it doesn't matter if it dies you care about the data okay if you store it in the qcow and you shoot the qcow you're in a lot of trouble does um, it
1: make it, does it make a difference to you that they're in like so for example the data would be in a separate a separate QCOW2 file, or would you say, is it, let me ask it this way, is it a performance thing like you're like, I don't like the idea of data residing in this this little container thing, that's weird to me, and there's a potential performance thing, or is it more a function of like, no, I want the security of just having the raw data exposed to a, just a plain old Jane file share so that all of the data sits inside of a folder, and I can just look at it and go, there, there's all the stuff, that's what we care about, the rest of this is confinement stuff, I I, I care about this, this works.
0: Well, so there's a couple of things, right? So when you are running a V host and then a Qcow and a file system on top of that, you if you think about this just from the perspective of I have a file system on my V host, then I create a virtual uh hard drive, then I put a file system on top of it, then I put files on top of that. Yeah. Um there there is overhead to that. Not to mention the fact that um for me Again, remember how we talked about last week, everybody has to choose a single point of failure. That you can't, I don't care how much money you spend, there will always be something in your network somewhere that is a single point of failure. For me, the single point of failure is my giant NAS. I don't want my single point of failure to be the thing running the service, I want it to be the thing running the data because for any number of reasons. The thing running the data is less likely to be taxed, like you're not running workload on it, so you're not CPU or RAM bound on it. Um, And it just sits there doing a thing, it literally doesn't even have to think about what it's doing, you know what I mean? Like there's no computational task for, ultimately for data storage. Right, They're Sure, there's a little bit if you're using compression or all the rest of that. But largely speaking, it's a dumb box that has a bunch of disks in it and it doesn't have any overhead in terms of that. So what's the difference? My question to you would be, if you're gonna store those cue cows over the, the 10 gig network anyways, you're, not, you're no longer just sharing individual files in the file mount, you're now picking up that entire QCOW image and shuffling that over the network instead of mm. just the pieces that are being accessed at that individual time. Okay. So, what, what benefit are you getting from that that you wouldn't get from a, a file share? Now, there's one exception. If you encrypt your QCOW, uh, then you can make a security argument saying like, well, in this case, the uh when the vm is off the only time that somebody can access this is when the vm boots up because you know it's encrypted at rest you'd have a lot harder time doing that with the file store yeah so if you make that argument okay i get it
1: yeah but... no it's not, it's not a security argument so the original rationale was when they had all local storage the idea is those cue are synced between the primary vhost and the backup vhost and the idea was so in from a 30,000-foot view, neither host, like, you, we should be able to run all of the VMs on either host. In practice, it doesn't really make sense to load one up and then have another one sitting empty. So we tried to load it up, you know, we tried to split that load up between the two. So the original idea was, behind having every, everything in a a 2 file, as long as those files are synced between the servers, if one ever went down, we just... Fire the VM backup on, on the backup guy now once you start looking at central storage that kind of goes out the window because both of them would in theory always have access to the storage pool so your argument of well just have it stored in a file it, it resonates with me because it's a simpler operation and oh by the way you can run it in a VM you can run it in a container it doesn't really matter you're just pointing the instance towards its its data repository.
0: You also have some benefit here as well if you chose to play around with the underlying ZFS like we do. Um, the the Zvol that holds the pictures has uh, the copies set to two, and that has a de- uh, an extra protection against bit rot because it always keeps a good copy of the of the files when it's moving it around. So you can do stuff like play around with. I know that this section of Nextcloud is only going to have video like potentially. Right. I understand if your clients and so you can't really predict that necessarily, but in terms of like, I'm going to use this compression here and this one's not going to be compressed or this one gets double backups because like this has uh, a copy of two mm-hmm. because this is really important data and I cannot lose this data. Like you can make those choices where if it's in a QCOW2 file you you can make the same choices. It just impacts literally everything that's inside there.
1: Somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, this is really fantastic. This, all this stuff is way outside of my budget, way outside of my knowledge level, way outside of my skill level. Let's take it back to the home user that let's say they have, you know, the router they bought at Best Buy and they have their laptops to which they listen to the Ask Noah show and listen to Steve and Noah talk about all their toys. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, I'd really like to get into virtual hosting. That sounds like a great idea, splitting up computer resourcing. I have an old Dell Optiplex, HP Elite, whatever. I have an old desktop and it has, I don't know, 16 gigs of RAM. Maybe I threw a couple SSDs in it and I can install something on it. What would you say is the easiest, most straightforward way to get a V host up and running for somebody who's never done it before?
0: I get That's a loaded question because the, Part of me says, well, slap Proxmox on it or whatever, because if you've never done it before, you're not carrying the baggage and it gives you a nice UI to click through. Um, the other part of me says, KVM is really simple and there's a lot of support behind it. It it may be a little bit intimidating because there isn't a GUI until you attach one to it. Um, so, I mean, my, my strong leaning is actually... KVM. I'm considering actually running nested virtualization on a new server. So I run KVM on the host and then have a VM that's running uh, VMware because I have need for VMware for for work-related testing. So I'm actually even considering that myself.
1: If you sat down with a brand-new Ubuntu box, and all you did was install Ubuntu server, and you log into that box, and you give it an Internet connection, And you ran sudo apt install. Let's see here. You need KEMU-KVM. You'd need libvert-daemon-system. And I think that's it. Yes, I just looked it up. You need those two packages. You need QEMU-KVM and libvert-daemon-system. If you had those two things, you will have a virtual host sitting on top of Ubuntu. If you add cockpit, you will have a virtual host with a web UI that you can use to manage it. If you have LibVert and you install Vert manager on your computer, you will have a virtual host and the ability to manage it. And, you know, the reality is I like the idea that today it can run on Ubuntu. Yesterday it was running on Alma. The day before that it was running on CentOS. The day before that it was running on Red Hat, right? It just, depending on what the ecosystem and the landscape looks like, The tool may run in a different place, but the tool is the same everywhere you go. And it is brain dead simple, really, to get set up and working. The thing that you'll struggle with the most, I think, is setting up the bridge. Setting up the bridge is the thing that requires, you know, other than setting up the bridge, it'll just work out of the box. You can fire the VM up, it'll have internet, you can install packages, you can SSH in, all the things. It's once you start getting to where you want that VM to have an IP address on your local network, that it's not even, it's, I wouldn't even describe it as difficult. You just have to learn enough about Netplan to learn how to create a bridge. And then you have to assign that bridge to the network interface of your VMs when you create it.
0: Now, to- you don't even have to do that, though, these days. So I've got to split a hair for you here. Okay, please. Um, there, there's a difference between bridging and using Mac VTAP. Um, so Mac VTAP essentially um, puts a rider on the network card. Um, it's. If I was to put it more simply, it's almost like passing the network card into the VM. The host does not see the traffic. And that's the downside of Mac VTAP. If you're on the host, you cannot access the VM via its network. If you don't care about that, you don't have to set up a bridge. There's an option in Vert Manager and other like other UIs where you can just attach the Mac the network card to a Mac VTAP. And that is just a hey, it's Mac VTAP and then you type or you get a little dropdown of the network interfaces in your host to which you will attach and then you click go and that's it. So if you don't need the host to have access to the services in the VM, Mac VTAP is the way to go. It's actually even more performant than a bridge in some circumstances.
1: So is the only advantage of the bridge that you're able to get to the VM from within the Vhost itself?
0: Uh, There are some... Technical situations where the bridge is more performant, but but when you're con- considering the average use case, yes, the bridge is really only used to make sure that the host can actually talk to the to the um, guest.
1: Could a person use Mac VTAP on like let's say your server had multiple network interfaces? Could a could the could the use Mac VTAP on one interface so that becomes the pass through NIC of sorts? And then have another NIC that is assigned to the host machine that deals So that in that way. Like, OK, fine. The host can't talk directly to the VM, but it, the host can go out to the network and then go through the router or whatever the network path would be for any other machine and then come back into that VM.
0: Yep, that'll work.
1: OK, so how about hardware? If you were looking to set up a hardware, you were trying to get started. Let's say you want to run one or two VMs. What would you be looking for?
0: Uh, well, you don't need much as long as your VMs are not going to be very computationally expensive. Like my, uh, my home assistant is running on a VM on a CPU that's circa 2017. So not super current. Um, and my next cloud was running on um, a machine that had a 2015 CPU in it. So you don't need tons. Honestly, you're going to be more Ram constrained than anything, unless you're doing something that is crunching a lot of numbers. Um, otherwise, you're probably not going to lo- notice a ton.
1: Anything else that we're leaving out of this discussion that we need to address? And of course, your questions are welcome at 855 450 no, 855 450 Send an email to live at com, and we'd gladly take your question.
0: I think that uh, that covers it for a base overview. If people want us to dive in deeper and get into the, the technical guts, write in and let us know, and we can... I'm sure noah would be happy to do so
1: the show is based in your feedback so we need you to participate you write in live at asknoahshow.com what parts do you like what things are useful to you and what questions do you have we'll answer them i appreciate your time thanks for joining us we record the show every tuesday at 6 p.m central if you're not looking at the show notes and you're only getting a portion of the show, everything we talked about, all the stuff we referenced, it's all over there. podcast.asnoshow.com. Check that out. If you want to follow us live on X, I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux the show at Asnoah Show. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asnoshow.com. Have a good week.